This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Well, we're going to be in Mark chapter 12 this morning, uh, the Gospel of Mark uh, chapter 12, uh, right at the beginning of the New Testament where we find um, the four Gospels that are basically rough sketches or biographies of Jesus' life. And Jake actually set up the message well because the, the message this morning is uh, titled Christmas Giving, which is just an Adventist way of saying we're going to talk about money. We're going to talk about money this morning. Um, it, it's, it's an interesting topic. It's one that we, we think almost all the time about. Almost all the time about. But uh, some pastors and some churches are uh, incredibly evasive and nervous about talking uh, about it. And I find that interesting for a couple of reasons. One, uh, because so many of our problems are about money. We, we know this. Uh, the, the two main issues in marriages are money and communication, and often communication about money, right? The second reason is because so much of the Bible talks about money. It's just um, almost incomprehensible, the amount of passages that deal with money and possessions in Scripture. Um, however, talking about this around Christmas is a little more is a little more normal. We're a little more used to that. Um, churches go into uh, budget seasons like we've been in uh, over the past number of weeks as uh, we had teams looking and praying over the budget and working numbers and asking God to clarify what's coming in the next year. While I think about it too, you'll get that link by text and email. I know some of you, um, text would just not work, right? But for almost all of us, text or email ought to work, right? We've had email for what, three decades now. So uh, almost, it ought to be able to work, uh, text or email. So you'll get both those between 12, uh, coming out at 12 if you're a member of the church. But we also, during this time of year, we as a church and many churches do special offerings. We do the Greater Impact Special Offering every year that kicks off, becomes available uh, to give to from the 1st of December all the way through uh, the end of January. Our goal this year is $40,000, and so uh, we'll talk more, and you guys will receive a good bit of information this week um, that explains more. Maybe this is your first time uh, to hear about something like this. It'll tell you all about it, answer frequently asked questions, as well as explain what that money goes toward. But it's an exciting time. It's an exciting time because through the Greater Impact Special Offering for two months, we call you to sacrificial giving. Sacrificial giving is not the normal kind of giving we do. That's just regular, faithful giving. Sacrificial, sacrificial giving is uh, above and beyond that. And I want us to look at a place in Scripture this morning in Mark chapter 12 where we see a picture of this. Because dealing with money in our lives, is, it's too big of an issue. It's too pivotal not for us to let God's Word speak to us about it. It's almost like going to the doctor and saying, look doctor, 
Um, I want you to just in general uh, make me healthy. Just tell me what I need to do to be healthy. And then the doctor says, all right, tell me about your family. Tell me how many hours a night do you sleep? How much water do you drink? Tell me about your diet. Tell me about uh, your fitness. Do you exercise? Tell me about your stress level. What do you do for work? How many hours uh, a week do you work? Tell me about um, your relationships. And we say, no, 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 no. You stick to the physical, right? And any doctor worth actually you paying to go see is going to say, I can't simply stick to the physical because all of this is tied together, right? You're an entire entity, an entire unit. And if you want me, um, God would say, if you want me in your life, You've got to let me talk to you about money and about your money. About money and about your money. Let's look at Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. An, a fascinating little passage. And I'll introduce you this morning to other places in Scripture because this, this concept of money in Scripture is always, always about what God wants for you, not what He wants from you. It's always about what God wants for you, not what he wants from you. I mean, it's safe to say that the God who can simply speak things into creation, who can bring people back to life and resurrect people, like his son Jesus Christ, never to die again, doesn't need anything from us. It's about what he wants for us, and I'll introduce you to some other texts and passages throughout the message, hoping uh, that you will go at some other time and dig into some of these. Let's look at Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 41. Sitting across from the temple treasury, so Jesus is in the temple at this time, he's been in the temple, he's been uh, addressing things, he's been teaching, and he sits down across from uh, the, the row of offering boxes where people would come in and give based on the amount they're giving and based on the particular offering that they're giving toward. Sitting across from the temple treasury, he watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many people were putting in, many rich people were putting in large sums. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. For they gave out of their surplus... But she, out of her poverty, has given or has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. All she had to live on. Now, we see right away here that the, the way that God views money and views giving is different than us. It's different than us. And I want, to, um, I want to point out three things just by way of observation about this passage, and we'll dive a little deeper into each one. The first is this, and this is going to come as a shock to modern American churchgoers. But giving in the Bible is almost always a public act. Giving in the Bible is almost always a public act. And I'm not sure that it's not always a public act. I just gave myself a little wiggle room there in case there was something my brain had forgotten. Giving the Bible is almost always a public act. Now, we don't treat it this way. 
We, we, we somehow have come to believe that, that what I give to the church is my business and only my business. And that's a, that's a nice idea. It's just not a biblical idea. It's not a biblical idea. You see right here that people are giving right out in the open. And Jesus is sitting down watching what's happening. And when he summons his disciples to him, it's not like he had to run out and get them. They're there with him, if you read the context of the passage. They're watching as well. He basically says, come here, boys, school circle, right? Take a knee. Let's talk about what we've just seen. This business of hidden giving ultimately flows from the hearts of people who don't want to give and aren't giving what they know they should be giving. We see this not only here, we see in in the first few verses of Luke chapter 8, we find women named who were financially supporting Jesus and his ministry. Well, how did they do that? They traveled with him and gave as he had need, right there publicly with the other disciples and the others following. We see in John chapter 18, particularly verse 39, that Nicodemus, who had previously come to Jesus in the night, comes in the day after his crucifixion and gives a gift, the Scripture tells us, of 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. That is roughly equivalent to $500,000 today. And just by the way, if any of you feel so prompted to give $500,000 maybe toward uh, the mortgage or whatever, feel free to do that. The Lord blesses that and honors you. We'll put your name somewhere. I'm just kidding. We're not going to put your name anywhere. <laughs> because that I do detest, the naming of everything after somebody, right? Let's just name it all after Jesus and give because he saved us, because he gives new life. But we see it right there. Not just that Nicodemus brought a great gift, but exactly what he brought. He brought it publicly. We see in Acts 4, Verses 34 through 37, not only that there were no needy in the church, because the church members were giving faithfully, right? Not 30% of them, not 70% of them. All of them who'd been saved were faithfully giving back to the ministry of Christ through the local church immediately. And then we find some are even specifically named. There's generically some that are selling things and giving that to the church to forward the ministry of Christ and the provision of the poor. And then we find uh, Barnabas named specifically as selling off land, bringing the money and putting it at the feet of the apostles. It's a public act of giving. It's a public act of giving. Um, The idea that pastors should have have no idea what anyone is giving, keep no pulse on the giving of a church, is absolutely absurd. It's an unbiblical concept. Giving is about our hearts. And pastors are called to the heart business. Most pastors know it's their job to know. Those that don't ought to because it's tantamount to pastoral malpractice. Because if you've got members in a church who claim to have been redeemed by Jesus from spiritual death headed toward an eternity separated from him, and they're never giving, that's a serious problem and you ought to know so that you can talk to them. Because they've either got a significant heart issue or a significant issue practically in their lives that needs pastoral care and needs addressing. It's absurd to me. It's absurd. Sometimes people will freak out 
um, if they find out, you know, pastors pay attention to what's, uh, what's going on in the giving life of a church, and, and they'll just leave. But I'll tell you, almost 100% of the time when you say, hey, show me their giving records, they didn't give. So who cares? I don't. I'll be honest. They can go to another church and not give to them. Right? Because if they're going to have that kind of issue in their life and not allow it to be addressed, I'd much rather them go not allow it to be addressed somewhere else than stay in our church and not allow it to be dressed. Addressed. It is a heart issue. It's a heart issue, and to ignore it is pastoral malpractice. Second thing, not only is giving almost always a public act in Scripture, in Scripture, one of the things that we see here and throughout Scripture is that, that everyone, when it comes to the people of God, everyone gives, both rich and poor. The beauty of the Old Testament sacrificial system, giving system as it's set up, is that God makes ways for everyone to give proportionally in accordance with their income. So that not only the rich can give, but the poor always have something to come and give. Why? Because God needs it. Did God need this widow's penny, which is the amount of money that this roughly translates to? A penny? God didn't need her penny. But it seems quite clear that this poor widow needed and wanted to give her penny to God. She wanted to come. Those with plenty give more. Those in poverty give less. But everyone, everyone gives. Verse 41 says, many rich people were putting in large sums. They're dropping in chunks of coins in there that would have amounted to a great deal of money. Then a poor widow, not just a widow, but a poor widow comes and dropped in two tiny coins. And this act of hers is so significant to Jesus. Notice, Jesus doesn't call his disciples over and say, look at how much the rich are giving. And I'll tell you what, the rich should give more. I thank God for those in his kingdom who have done well financially by his grace and are generous givers. There has been um, just incalculable gospel good done and mission activity and ministry made available through the generosity of, of well-off and financially wealthy people in Christ's church and throughout the history of the church. But what Jesus finds so astounding is, the, is the, the gift that the woman gives that comes out of not her plenty, but her poverty. If you think back just a, a little bit to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus addresses possessions and money and the heart. Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse 19, Jesus says, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Now, Jesus is speaking idiomatically now. He's using an idiom here to compare two things, where if you just strictly took the words, you wouldn't understand the meaning of what he's saying. He's not saying never save. He's not saying accumulate wealth. It's quite clear that there are wealthy people throughout Scripture and throughout the history of the church who have done very well with their wealth 
by God's grace. He's doing a comparison. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But rather than that, he's, he's comparing two different actions that flow from two different perspectives of value. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For, and then here's where Jesus says, why? This is why I'm talking to you about money. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the incredible danger present. When you have someone who professes to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple of his, yet goes months and months and months and months and months and months and and never gives. Jesus would say there's something wrong in their heart. Get to them. Talk with them. Find out what's going on. This is why giving is a personal matter in Scripture, but it is not a private matter. It is a communal matter. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is basically saying this. Whatever is so easy for you to give to is really where your heart is. If you want to know what idols you struggle with, What's most easy for you to spend your money on will reveal that to you. Whether you're a spender or saver, this works both ways, right? If you're a spender, maybe it's restaurants, clothes, cars, houses, uh, vacations, whatever it may be. If it's super easy for you to spend and spend, God would say, step back and think about that. What, What is it? What is it that's really at the root of that? Because your potential idols may be image, maybe comfort, Maybe entertainment, maybe a certain lifestyle that you feel like you need to live. But I'll say, on the other end of that, sometimes there's savers who sort of look down their noses at everyone who drive nice vehicles or have big cars or go on nice vacations. And they're like, look at that, you know, wasteful. You know, they, they've saved everything, everything, everything. And it just grows and grows and grows and grows. And they like to watch it grow. If that's you, instead of looking down your nose at other people, Maybe just turn your face to God and say, what are my potential idols? Maybe your potential idols are something like security or control. See, it's never really about money. It's about the things that we think money will provide us that only God will provide. It's why it's such an important and profound and powerful topic and why it cannot and should not and must not be avoided. You can't preach Scripture You can't preach Scripture without preaching on money and possessions. It just pops up everywhere. Everywhere. Because who of us, if we were honest in here, wouldn't say we struggle with this? Who wouldn't say you struggle with this in one way or another? We all do. We all do. Jesus goes on, he says, in verse 22 of Matthew 6, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is this darkness? Um, And then he moves right on into money. Jesus hasn't had a a, a sort of like um, a, a mental tick or stroke right here and just thrown something in. He's comparing lightness and darkness in our lives, good and bad, to our handling of money. To the hold that money has on us, to what we do with our money. 
Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Since either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You've heard me say this before, but the rational mind would think Jesus was about to say, you cannot serve God and Satan, or good and evil. But he says God and money. It's profound. It's profound. Jesus says this because he knows that he has no greater competition for the affections of our hearts than our money. And then what we can do with our money. Now, why does Jesus include this on the Sermon on the Mount? He includes this in the Sermon on the Mount because he is expecting that all of his disciples are both going to have issues with money and are going to be givers. They need to understand money. We need to understand the hold it has on us and what God has asked us to do. And let me say um, a word to the, to the men in here. You need to lead in this area in your home. You need to lead in this area in your home. You need to be the one that is before God providing, in a sense, this, this covering and this leading of obedience over your family. Not allowing your wife to have to prod you to be generous. Often when we talk about money in church, you'll hear the word tithe. And there's a lot of confusion about that. Uh, often people will think this. This is most commonly what we think about it. A tithe is simply whatever I give to the church. But that's not a tithe. And I bring up tithe because you, you almost can't talk about money in Scripture without having to deal with this topic. This was the single standard in the Old Testament by which God measured basic. And by basic, I mean kind of kindergarten, training wheel, faithfulness giving among his people. And it's not just something that you relegate to the Old Testament and say, yes, but we're New Testament people now under grace, not law. That's true. Yet Jesus, Jesus in John 11, affirms the tithe. It should be something that we're doing, but it should not be something we're doing in a legalistic way where we say, no, I've already given my 10%. I'm not giving anything more, including kindness or efforts toward justice or anything like that. It's a generosity thing. Tithe in the Bible, tithe in the Bible simply means the first 10% of your income given back to God for ministry, for care for the poor, for the advance of God's kingdom, and gospel work. The first 10% of your income, each pay cycle, bonus, etc. And look, listen to me when I say this. I understand viscerally what it is to get paid and go, man, these hundreds that I'm about to give back to God through the local church would go a long way at the end of this pay cycle. I understand it, but you've got to give it. You've got to. Well, I guess you don't have to. But you should. That should be easy most of the time for us to give. Now, there are times, and it's so easy to give now, right? You don't have to remember to write a check. I can just pull up LNBC Giving on my phone like a, a contact and type a number in and hit send, and I get a receipt right there, and it comes to my email. Thank you for giving X amount of money. And sometimes you do that, and you're like, oh, I trust you, God. Send. 
oh, I'm trusting you, Lord. Jesus, help us get to the next place. I go, send. This is part of what God is want. This is why this is such a big issue. God wants you to trust him. He wants you to worship him in this way. I've never met mature or maturing Christians who were deeply faithful givers and hadn't long surpassed the basic training level of a tithe to go on and become generous givers. The, the tithe is, is put in Scripture. Remember that all that God did with his people throughout the Old Testament was by grace as well. You remember that? Do you remember that God called Abraham and made a covenant with Abraham? before there was any law, before there was anything for the people of God to do. It's always been about grace. And the practice of a tithing is intended to train us toward generosity and guard us from greed because none of us ever think we're greedy, right? Nobody. I've never in 20 plus years of ministry had somebody say, hey, I need to come talk to you. I'm really wrestling with something. And we get in there and I say, what's up? Tell me. Uh, tell me more. What's going on with you? And they say, man, I'm just so doggone greedy. Because no matter who you are, you know someone who spends more than you, so you always feel frugal and middle class. Money has an insidious way of sneaking up and grabbing a hold of us and stealing our joy and confusing us. This idea of the first Rather than the last, like, oh, I'm going to get paid. I'm, I'm going to wait until right before I get paid again and give that last 10%. Brother, sister, that last 10% won't be there. It will not be there. Plus, God don't want your leftovers. Are you kidding? Even you don't want to eat leftovers at home. God wants our hearts conditioned to love and worship Him and want to give Him our best. Proverbs 3, 9 says, Honor the Lord. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first produce of your entire harvest. Now, don't let that confuse you. Don't, let you, don't sit out there and go, whoo, I'm not a farmer. That's good. This was their income. Some of you may have grown up in agricultural backgrounds, and you understand that harvests or cattle or whatever, they are your income. This is the biblical principle of first fruits, that as you receive right off the top the first and the best, you give back to the God who gave you what you received in the first place. This is what I think we don't understand, that when pay drops into your account, when that check comes in the mailbox, whatever happens, that comes ultimately from God to you. That comes ultimately from God to you. If you go all the way back to Deuteronomy 26, you find a really interesting passage. Deuteronomy 26, when you enter the land, this is toward the end of Moses' life, uh, the, the people of God have uh, wandered in the wilderness and they're getting ready to, uh, to go into the land that God has promised them, the future. When you enter the land, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and you take possession of it and live in it, take some of the first of all the land's produce that you harvest from the land the Lord your God is giving you, and put it in a basket. Then go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to have his name dwell. When you come before the priest who is serving at that time, say to him, Today I declare to the Lord your God that I have entered the land the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. See, giving is an act of worship. 
It's an overflow of what God has already done for you. And those living in grace should understand this, should delight in this, should give joyfully, not begrudgingly. Verse 4, then the priest will take the basket from you and place it before the altar of the Lord your God. Many of you will be familiar with um, Malachi chapter 3. It's often talked about with regard to to tithing. It, it is an, a really interesting passage, and part of it is, is because it's so intriguing about, uh, around what it says about us and our relationship with God. Malachi 3, 6 and following says, Because I, the Lord, have not changed, you descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed. Now, I'll be honest with you, sometimes I'll say a version of this to my children. Because I, your father, have not changed, and fear both God and the penal system, you have not been destroyed. Yesterday was one such day. Since the day, in other words, God is saying, by my grace, you remain my people. Don't ever believe the lie of Satan that in the Old Testament, the law kept people right with God, not grace. And now you're people of grace, so you should actually give less. It's absurd. It's not even rational to a thinker. Since the days of your ancestors, you've turned from my statutes. You've not kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord of armies. So what's interesting is they were still God's people. But the Lord is telling them that there is a sense in which there's a separation between them. Whether or not they are aware of it. You ask, how can we return? Verse 8, will a man rob God? And this word rob here is it's a strong, almost violent picture of oppression, pillaging, plundering. Yet you're robbing me. And, an, and a natural person would say, how can I rob God? How can I plunder God? And God's ready for this. Imagine that. How do we rob you, you ask? By not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions. You're suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. It's about what God wants for you, not what he wants from you. If he can keep the globe spinning, earth spinning at just the right speed, at just the right tilt, to maintain human life, I don't think he needs our assistance. But we kid ourselves. If we think we don't, need God, we, we don't need God through Scripture to speak to us about this issue of money and debt and spending and possessions and what's true about this. Tim Keller says that there, there can be no significant spiritual growth, and I absolutely agree with him, and I've seen this across the years. There can be, there can be no significant spiritual growth in your life unless you put your money and your attitude about money into God's hands. Your money and your attitude about money into God's hands. Because here's the thing. Uh, if you and I fall into this thinking of, well, but I work hard for it, right? Everybody else is goofing around and, and, and drinking beer and doing drugs, and I chose to go to college, and I chose to keep my nose to the grindstone, and, and I worked hard, and I've saved, and I've, I've put off things. That's fine, and that's good. That's good. You did all of that, though, with life and health and opportunities and energy that God gave you. You did that with oxygen that God gave you 
to breathe. If you'd been born on a hilltop in Mongolia in the 12th century, you wouldn't have done any of that. You have no say over when and where you're born. If you'd been born on an outer island of Indonesia, you'd still be poor. didn't matter how hard you work. doesn't matter what opportunities you seize. There aren't any opportunities there for you. Our, our thinking about money gets so confused when we drift from the beautiful truth that God gives us in Scripture. Um, Proverbs 11 Proverbs 11 gives us a, a good picture sometimes of how confused we can get. Proverbs 11, 24 and 25 says, One person gives freely, yet gains more. Another withholds what is right only to become poor. This is really important because sometimes we think, Oh, I can't give, I have too much debt. Part of the, the way that you get out of debt is that you get into obedient living with God is that you trust him financially to both give as you should and pay, pay your debt. But we don't believe this. We don't trust. It seems backwards to us that one person gives freely yet gains more. Now, some of you could stand up this morning and we could just finish out the entire morning with you giving testimonies about this about how by God's grace you have been able to be financially secure and well off and you have given and given and given and given and you are still financially secure and well off and maybe even more. It's not uh, math or science, it's, it's art. It's a spiritual reality that we, we don't quite understand. And it's not a, a, a tit for tat, it's not a, if you give then God gives X amount. Because some of you will never be financially well off, but you're very, very generous. And you would give the same testimony that God has shown himself faithful. One person gives freely yet gains more. Another withholds what is right only to become poor. We need Scripture to straighten out the places that are crooked in our minds. The thing, the thing about tithing, giving the first 10% of of your income. And it's fun to watch our kids dealing with this uh, right now. Uh, JC's been working for a while, so she's uh, learned this lesson already. Kate has just started uh, working for the man, as he says, and so he's getting uh, a paycheck, and he's, he's set, set up so that he can tithe and give faithfully back to the church. He asked me one day, just out of curiosity, as many, many, many church members have across the years, should, should I should I tithe off of, he didn't use these words, but here's what he was saying. Should I tithe off the gross of the net? And I said, I don't know, off whatever you want God to bless. And I was being facetious, but I, I think it's real. I think it's a serious, a serious thing to say. It's amazing. Just the very fact that we struggle with this is such a testimony to God's goodness in addressing it. The fact that there is, is almost a reactionary pushback should be screaming out to you that you have issues with this. That as human beings we have issues with this. And we need God's, we need God's truth to set us free. There's a story, probably not true, but I hope it is, um, of a British farmer who uh, had a cow get pregnant that he wasn't expecting to be pregnant. He was excited about that uh, because he was going to be able to sell off that calf and get some income. Uh, well, he comes to find out that the, the, uh, the cow's actually pregnant with two calves. 
two calves, twin calves. And he's super excited about that. He comes in sort of uh, swollen with himself, as husbands can get from time to time. And he says, honey, we're Christians and members of the church. And so just as a way of honoring the Lord and a way of demonstrating generosity, I'm going to give, going to give the second calf to the church for them to sell off his income for the church. And she said, that's good. That's a good thing to do. And then some weeks later, he comes back in downtrodden, downcast. His wife says, what's wrong? And he says, honey, terrible news. The Lord's calf died. Some of you will get that later. It's always the Lord's calf that dies. That's why God instructs us to give the first 10%. Because if not, it's always the Lord's calf that dies. Because the the teaching of Jesus taken as a whole is meant to, to reverse our normal thinking. Our normal thinking is... How much can I afford to give back to God after spending everything I I want on myself? Everything that I've accumulated, all the debt that I've taken on, my house, my shoes, my car payment, my everything. Jesus wants us to reverse that, to see um, on the other side what we'd seen as negotiable before. See, we have, by nature, we see giving back to God as negotiable, both as an act and and amount, kind of like we see discipleship, shamefully. Uh, being saved, and there is no distinction here, I'm going to get my trouble, myself in trouble with words, but we see getting saved, quote-unquote, is very important. Discipleship is optional. Jesus says, I want you to reverse that. I want you to see as non-negotiable that which you give back to God in obedience and faithfulness and as an act of worship, and I want you to see as negotiable how much you spend on yourself. Do you notice the flip there? Instead of non-negotiable is what I'm going to spend on myself, and negotiable is going to be what I give to God. Three pennies, 12 pennies, a dollar, 500,000. That's all negotiable. Jesus says, no, no, flip that. Flip that. One last observation. One last observation here from this story in Mark 12 is simply this, that sacrificial giving sacrificial giving most reveals a heart for God. That's why Jesus calls his disciples around. That's why he makes this stunning statement. He says, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more, has put more into the treasury than all the others. Well, she just hadn't. She hadn't done that. But Jesus was pointing out something spiritually something in the realm of the kingdom of God that we wouldn't see naturally. He's saying there was more, more at stake, more honor, more worship, more trust in what she put in there than all the large sums that the rich were putting in. Because it cost her something. It cost her something. That's the difference in sacrificial giving. Sacrificial giving is above and beyond your regular, biblically faithful giving. And we, we, all of us ought to be moving toward those kind of training wheels of tithing if you claim the name of Christ and you're not there yet, right? Start giving. Start giving something. Start giving something consistently and faithfully every time you're paid. Start moving toward that, trusting God prayerfully, joyfully, thanking Him. But sacrificial giving, generous giving is another way of saying that. 
is giving beyond that to a degree that it costs me something, where I have to say no to something else. I have to maybe scale back for the, for the short term. Maybe this month or this quarter I can't do as much of this or that. I have to postpone something, put it off until later. Maybe I sell something. That's the call to sacrificial or generous giving. And God's people have been known for this. They've been defined by this. First Chronicles 29, as the Israelites were raising money to build the temple, David prays and he says in verse 10 of 1 Chronicles 29, David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. David said, may you be blessed, Lord God of our father Israel, from eternity to eternity. Yours, Lord, is the greatest. Now listen to these words he attributes to God. And the power and the glory and the splendor and the majesty. For everything in the heavens and on earth belongs to you. Belongs to you. Everything that's in my bank account, I'm, I'm just a broker for. God is the investor. God owns it. Everything you have, you are simply managing for the Lord. He owns it, and he doesn't relinquish ownership of it any more when he allows it to pass into your hands than you do when you invest through some firm or with a financial investor or broker. Everything belongs to God. Twelve, riches and honor come from you. You are the ruler of everything. Power and might are in your hand, and it is in your hand to make great and to give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. This is as they're giving back to God to build the temple. Verse 14, but, and David gets to, to what's on his heart and mind right now, who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Do you get the corporate nature of this? Right? Uh, a healthy church is a generous church because it doesn't depend on the gifts of one or two, but on the collective, on the corporate body who together are able to give mightily. Who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? And then David helps us understand what he means. For everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. We've given only what comes from your hand. Let me share one more passage with you, and I wish we had time to go into it. It's so fascinating. We don't, but it would really do you good to go later and read uh, carefully and thoughtfully and prayerfully 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. In these chapters, um, Paul is, is taking up a collection from one group to give to another in need. It is uh, uh, closely associated with what we're doing with the greater impact special offering so what he's talking about here is not their regular giving to their own church but their sacrificial giving their generous giving you and i haven't given generously until we've surpassed the tithe right until until i reach the tithe threshold i'm simply not withholding what belongs to god already once i give that back and continue then we begin to give generously. Paul says in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians chapter 9, the point is this. The point is this. The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. 
Remember, he, he's talking to them about giving to the special offering that's going to, to travel back to Jerusalem. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you, so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. Verse 10. Now the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will also provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all generosity which produces thanksgiving to God through us. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the proof provided by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedient confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone. What Paul is saying here, if you reduce it, is the way that you give generously constitutes the proof that you have heard and received the gospel and been changed by God so that you no longer consider what you have to be your own. As we, um, as a church, move into a time uh, of calling towards sacrificial or generous giving so that we're asking uh, all of us together to give above and beyond toward the Greater Impact Special Offering, what we give regularly, what we give regularly and faithfully to support the ministry of the church, know that you, you are in line in that with all of the people of God throughout history. As you think about this, if you're married, you talk with your spouse, you guys think and pray what's the, the most that we could give generously toward this goal. Out of this special offering, we support Lottie Moon. Uh, which is a Southern Baptist missionary effort that supports missionaries and helps plant churches around the world. Uh, we support graffiti church and community ministries on the Lower East Side of Manhattan that provides basic human needs like clothing, shelter, medical and dental care, after school care and educational help to kids. Sharon, I've been there. It's, been, it's amazing to watch the kids from the projects come in there after school and get a healthy snack and find uh, people who love Jesus sitting there working with them, tutoring with them, so hopefully they can rise up out of the generational poverty that they're caught in. They provide weekly community meals for the homeless and under-resourced, and they do all of this in a Christ-centered way, sharing the gospel both in word and in deed. Part of it goes to support Orchard Africa, Centered in South Africa, but working in Namibia, Botswana, Zimbabwe, Mozambique. Around four gospel-centered blocks, food and agriculture, education, care, ministry, all through local churches in and around South Africa as they're meeting tangible needs and equipping and training local pastors. It goes toward building renovation and updates here. It goes toward member care and benevolence. Just this past year, through the giving that you guys did last year to the Greater Impact Special Offering, you helped provide needed dental work for individuals, uh, individual and marital counseling, assistance with child care and urgent bill needs, vehicle assistance, and so much more, as well as technology upgrades and ministries that desperately needed it, like LM Kids. So you'll get all of that this week. But as we stand this morning... I want you to go ahead and stand this morning. <laughs> or stay seated, whatever you want to do, right? Um, you're like, preach on money, I'm not standing up. Um, as we stand together before the Lord, 
I, I hope that you'll just be honest with God about this issue of money. That's where healing and health and growth starts. It's just to be honest. And if you're somebody who you know good and well, you've been robbing God for years. Just say, God, I know I've been robbing you. I've known for years what your word teaches about financial faithfulness and generosity. Help me to start today. Some of, your men, some of you men, maybe, you need to ask God to forgive you for the lack of leadership you've provided in your own home around this issue. None of this is about guilt. Guilt is a poor motivator. It's about what God was for you. It's about what it really means to be a disciple of Jesus, to be bearing the kind of fruit that Jesus says his people actually bear when they are indeed saved, when the Holy Spirit dwells in them. Hear God's call this morning to trust him, to worship him, regularly, faithfully through your giving and through sacrificial and generous giving towards the special offering this year. Let's pray. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us.